Well, please remain standing for the reading of God's word from Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to 29. Galatians 3, 26 to 29. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God, through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. It's God's word for his people today. You may be seated, and let's pray once again and ask for God's help. God, give us eyes to see the glorious truths in these verses who you are and who we are now because of Jesus Christ. So teach us what we don't know. Feed us, we pray, and then send us out proclaiming the glories of you who have called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light, we pray. Amen. So let's say after our worship concludes this morning, you go out to lunch. And after you're seated, your waiter stops by your table and introduces himself and then asks, how are you doing? And you respond, great, I had a fantastic morning with my church family worshiping Jesus. And he says, oh, you're a Christian. What's that all about? Now, what do you say? What's the first thing that comes to mind when you're asked, what's a Christian? And in his classic book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer writes this. He says, a Christian is one who has God as father. And in the little dot, 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 he says, you can, you can say a lot of things about Christian, but fundamentally, at a baseline level, anyone who is a Christian anywhere in the world, at any time, any culture, can say God is father. And if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much they make of the thought of being God's child and having God as their father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls their worship and prayers and their whole outlook on life, it means they do not understand Christianity very well at all. A Christian is one who has God as Father at a fundamental level. Does that surprise you? That God as Father is at the heart of the Christian life? That your understanding of Christianity then has less to do with how well you would do on a theology exam and has more to do with knowing God is your father and you are his child? And please notice I didn't say it doesn't matter what you know. I said the Christian life is less about the score you would get on a theology exam and more about knowing God is your father. And you're his child. And that's how Paul answers the question here at the end of chapter 3. He brings all the pieces of his argument so far together to a close here in 26 to 29 and answers the what is a Christian question by showing us three things that are true of those whom God saves by faith alone in Jesus alone. He says a Christian receives a new identity a supernatural identity, and a secure identity. When God saves sinners, they have a new, supernatural, and secure 
identity. And so first, when God saves sinners, they receive a new identity. Look at verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And the word for points back to verses 23 to 25, where Paul was arguing that we are no longer under the babysitting of the law, Jew and Gentile, no longer imprisoned under the law, because Christ has come. And sinners are justified by faith alone, in Jesus alone, not by works of the law. So when God grants uh, repentance of sins and faith in Jesus, sinners in that moment receive a new identity. They are sons of God. Now remember, what, what is Paul fighting against in this letter to the Galatians? The Judaizers, the false teachers, had said Paul had shortchanged the Galatians with his man-pleasing gospel. He left out the really hard parts because he wanted to make it easy for them to believe. And because he did that, they weren't truly yet a part of God's people. In addition to their faith in Jesus, they had to add works of the law to really, truly, fully become part of God's family. But chapter 3 teaches God never intended the law to function that way. Because God saves not by human performance, but by grace, through faith in God's promise. Just as God justified or made Abraham righteous in his sight, declared him not guilty of all the sins, and also clothed him with righteousness, that's what justification means, God justified Abraham through faith in God's promise, not by works. And so faith and not works is what makes you or a person a son of Abraham. But then verse 26 takes that even further. When God saves sinners, not only do they become sons of Abraham, they become sons of God. God's sons. Now this is intimate family language. God's fatherly love for and care of his people, that intimate uh, side of God, is often the collateral damage uh, in circles like ours that highlight transcendence and sovereignty. And we have to hold God's imminence and his transcendence together. Because God's imminence and transcendence are together in his salvation of sinners, isn't it? God sovereignly saves sinners. It is all of God from beginning to end. And he gets all the glory because it's all of God. But what is the goal? What happens when God sovereignly saves sinners? He makes them his sons. He brings them into his love and care, into his family. And Hebrews 2 says he does that because he's going to bring many sons to glory. So Sinclair Ferguson writes this. Our sonship to God is the apex of creation, the pinnacle of creation, and the goal of redemption. It's a great little book called Children of the Living God. But he says sonship, sonship is the goal of God saving sinners. And we, we, and we see this throughout the scriptures, that it's the apex of creation and the goal of God's redemptive plan. Adam is called God's son in the genealogy in Luke 3. Throughout the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is called God's son. Then God's son becomes the focus of the promised Davidic king who would come to reign forever. And the New Testament reveals that's Jesus Christ, the son of God. And so sonship is this theme woven throughout God's purposes in creating human beings to live with him and enjoy him. And when we rebelled against him, 
God planned and then started to carry out his plan of salvation to bring sinners through the redeeming blood of Jesus back to himself. And in doing so, he makes them sons. And God the Father, in God the Son, through God the Spirit, saves those who were once children of God's wrath because of their sin and now makes them his sons. He gives them a new identity. And now uh, we use the ESV here, but some of you uh, have other translations. And many other translations here that are more modern uh, translate this phrase children of God or sons and daughters of God. Uh, But sons of God is not offensive, male-only, chauvinistic language. Uh, It's inheritance language. Paul specifically chose sons to refer to both male and female sinners who God redeems because it's inheritance language. In those days, only the sons had claim to the family inheritance, not daughters. And actually, even the Judaizers coming to Galatian preaching circumcision would, would make women even feel like second-class citizens even now in God's kingdom. And so verse 26 is revolutionary in saying all are sons of God. Men and women, Jew and Gentile, have all the rights and privileges of a true son of the living God. And that new identity is received by union with Christ. We're sons by our union with Jesus. If Paul was at lunch with you today, which would be pretty cool, and maybe kind of freaky, but it would be cool, if he shows up at lunch and the waiter says, what's a Christian? And you're kind of like, "Uh, uh, uh, how about the Apostle Paul take this one, right? (laughs) He would say, he could say it in two words, in Christ. A Christian is someone who is in Christ. Now, of course, that would need some uh, explanation, but it would be true. Fundamentally, a Christian is someone who is united with Jesus, who is in Christ. He could go on and just answer how we've seen in Galatians already. A a Christian is someone who has been crucified with Jesus. And so now it's no longer me who's sitting here, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. A person who is now so united by faith with the Son of God, I am adopted within that union into God's family. I'm a son of God. And adoption helps us understand the end of verse 26, that little phrase, through faith. So Paul has clearly and just consistently hammered home this point, so much so that I feel like I'm a broken record up here every Sunday morning going, it's not by, it's not by works, but by faith. But Paul just keeps hammering this home because we need to hear the message that salvation is by faith alone. And he, can hear, he continues to just hammer home this point that faith and works are fundamentally opposed in God's saving sinners. In the saving act of sinners. Faith and works are mutually exclusive. And now he uses adoption language to make crystal clear that our saving, the saving union with Jesus, comes through faith and not by works. And it's helpful to understand that in terms of adoption. No one works their way into a family. You have to be adopted into it. And so God adopts as his son 
anyone whose faith alone is in his son alone, Jesus. It's by our uniting, uh, by faith being united by the Holy Spirit to Jesus that we are made God's sons. And we receive that new identity, which we could not earn, which we could never gain on our own, which we lost in the Garden of Eden, which was lost to us unless God made a way. The only way we receive this new identity and we can stand firm that we are, I am a son of God, is in Christ alone through faith alone. So two things I'd like to point out about this new identity we have. Uh, first, uh, verse 26 says you are sons. You, you are. The moment you're united to Jesus through faith, you are fully and truly a son of God. If, if God saved you in time and space last week, or you've been, you've been in Christ for 80 years, you are both fully and equally sons of God, heirs of promise. You might have different experiences of it. You might have to live into it. We must spend time enjoying it and living in it, plumbing the depths of it. We'll never exhaust it. But we are equally and fully, truly sons of God. When Owen was a baby, uh, we were given clothes that he didn't fit yet. Because everyone's like, you're going to get little diapers and little clothes, but in six months you're going to need bigger ones. So, you know, we're, we're helping you out down the road. And I thought that was very thoughtful. But that's not what verse 26 is saying. Sonship isn't something you've got to grow up into. It might be something you more fully experience. But there's no second-class citizens in God's family. You are sons fully and truly by faith. You have to walk in it. You need to spend time enjoying the blessings of it. But, and you will never exhaust the, all the riches of the heavenly places that are yours in Jesus Christ. But they are all fully yours the moment the Holy Spirit unites you by faith to Jesus. Which means then, secondly, sonship is received, not achieved. And this is, this is we, we know this, don't we? I'm, I'm a Sherwood son, I didn't do anything to make that happen. I just received it. I was, I was not the active partner in those things. We, we can't achieve sonship. It's something that's granted, that's given, that's received, that's bestowed. But yet we, we know this. We know this is how this works in the world. We know this is true of us through Scripture. And yet how often do we walk around trying to achieve this sonship rather than living from it? We must live from sonship, not for it. Because in Christ, it's already ours. So we don't live to achieve a new identity like the world around us teaches us we have to. Or we can. You can be anything you want to be. Just go out and do it. That's not how it works in God's family. It's already ours by faith. And no do we need to live to maintain it. It's yours. You don't need to maintain it. You need to live from it. We live from this new identity we've graciously received. And then when that's how you begin each and every day, that I am fully loved, fully, truly a son of God, and all that goes along with that is mine, that changes everything. changes everything. But friend, hear what verse 26 is not saying. It doesn't say all people are sons of God. Okay. It doesn't say everyone 
in all the world are sons of God. It says those whose faith is in Jesus are sons of God in this way. So if your faith isn't in Jesus, you're still in your sin. You're still in the other man, the first Adam, and you're a child of wrath. Not a son of God, but a child of wrath. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus lived perfectly righteous and so was the only one able to die as the atoning substitutionary sacrifice for sinners on the cross. And because he was sinless, death could not hold him. It had no claim on him. So on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead, victoriously conquering sin and death once and for all. And now all those who repent of sin and turn to Jesus in faith receive this new identity, no longer children of wrath, but sons of God. But it's only those who repent and turn to Jesus in faith. And that's that new identity that we have. Who is a Christian? Or excuse me, what is a Christian? I have a new identity. I'm a son of God. And then secondly, not only is this identity new, it's also supernatural. It's also supernatural. Look at verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So the reason all those whose faith in Jesus are sons of God is because they've been baptized into Jesus, the Son of God. And baptism is the act of immersing a professing believer, someone who has professed faith and trust in Jesus alone, in water. And that is a symbol of the spiritual reality that at the moment God made you alive and granted you faith, and repentance of sins. In that moment, the spiritual reality going on is that the Holy Spirit immersed the sinner in Jesus' death and resurrection. That's what Paul goes on later, and excuse me, in his later letter, Romans chapter 6, he teaches about baptism there in a more full way. Baptism is the sign and seal of our being in Christ. So being baptized physically in water is the sign and seal that we have been spiritually baptized into Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Now, baptism doesn't save. The spiritual reality happens uh, when God saves us. And the physical act of baptism is not salvific. It functions like our adoption papers. it, It shows what's already true of us. It's a picture that we've been plunged into Jesus. So everything that's his is ours. We saw a baptism up here a couple weeks ago, and it's glorious when the church witnesses this sign and seal of what is already true of someone, and we see the adoption papers being handed to them. That you've been plunged into Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and everything that's Jesus is actually yours. And again, if you think about this every morning, this will change everything. Everything that is Jesus is yours. His life and his righteousness, yours. His death for sin, yours. His resurrection out of the grave, yours. And notice the verb baptize is passive. You were baptized. You were baptized. The baptism up here, it wasn't just someone walking in and doing it to themselves. You, you can't baptize yourself. It must be done to you because it's a reflection of the reality of what God has graciously done to you. It, it, you can't earn it. You can't work your way into the water. You can't dunk yourself. 
You can't claim this on your own acts or your own merit. It's done to you, reflecting the reality of what God has graciously done for you. And so this identity that's truly and fully yours isn't natural. It's supernatural. Everything we could achieve naturally can be lost naturally. But this is a supernatural identity. It can't come through your activity. It only comes by divine activity. And when the Holy Spirit then plunges sinners into Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, God saves them because he's plunging them into the one who saves. And that's what's emphasized in verse 27. You are plunged into Jesus, and so you're now clothed with him. You're clothed with him. You've put on Christ. And this is also a theme that's been running since the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned in Eden, they realized they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together to do what? To cover themselves. And later, God made them uh, clothes from animal skin. The first time something died to cover the sins of men and women, which pointed to the Old Testament sacrificial system to come. But the blood of bulls of goats, we're told, cannot atone. They can never take away sin. They can only cover it. And so when the prophet Isaiah gave voice to his longing for the day, when just over and over I sin and sacrifice, sin and sacrifice, it's never taken away. It's never saving. So when, when, he's, when he, by the Holy Spirit, is longing for the day when God's promised salvation would arrive, Isaiah wrote about it this way in, his, in chapter 61. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. Greatly. I, my soul shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. Something that actually saves. Not just covers and pushes it away for a little bit, but actually saves. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. The Lord clothes his people with garments of salvation and robes of righteousness. And what are those garments and robes? Oh, it's Jesus. It's Christ himself. And baptism is both the spiritual reality and the physical sign that you've been clothed with the garments of Christ himself, that he is your righteousness and salvation. And some of you might be wearing your Sunday best this morning. But those are rags <laughs> compared to what God sees you wearing this morning if your faith is in his son, Jesus. He sees Christ. You've put on Christ. And again, this shows how fundamentally opposed faith and works are. What were the Judaizers telling people to do? They were telling men to put off through circumcision. And they were telling men and women they needed to put off things from their lives in order to be marked off as God's true people. But brothers and sisters, praise God, it's not what you put off that saves us. It's who we've been clothed with that saves us. It's these garments of salvation that are Jesus Christ that, that fill our mouths and hearts with praise and love for God. And it's this putting on, then, of Christ. 
this being clothed with the garments of Christ himself, of righteousness and salvation, that then leads into verse 28. He says, there are neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. All right, so uh, let's put ourselves back at the restaurant where you're hanging out with the Apostle Paul, and you've been asked, what is a Christian? Now, in that context helps us uh, understand the point of verse 28, because verse 28 is answering the question, who are the sons of God? Who are the sons of God? And the resounding answer from chapter 1 through now, chapter 3, is all whose faith is in Jesus Christ. Faith, not works. And so the faith by which we receive our new and supernatural identity transcends the divided identities of our world. Let me say that again. The faith by which we receive our new and supernatural identity takes primary place. It transcends the divided identities of our world. So your ethnicity, your social class, or your gender don't determine your standing before God. It has nothing to do with whether God justifies you or not. Receiving the new and supernatural identity of sons of God is never determined by your ethnicity, your social class, or your gender. Because Christ transcends the divisions of the present evil age. And so there are no cultural customs or laws you must obey in order for you to be a part of God's family. You don't have to do something for God to adopt you into his family. God does it. God doesn't look at the amount of stuff you have or how much you don't have when it comes to who he's going to choose to adopt into his family. And there's no gender superiority or inferiority when we stand before God. Nor is gender taken into account, uh, is taken into account by God to, to make someone a full and true part of his family. So ethnic, social, and gender difference are irrelevant to your justification before God and your fellowship in his family. That's what Paul is saying here in verse 28. And so when we understand it in its context, we clearly see that verse 28 is not teaching that the church is an unethnic, classless, genderless community, but rather we have something that goes deeper than those things the world divides by. We have a fundamental unity in Jesus. Now, being in Christ doesn't abolish our ethnic or social differences. It abolishes ethnic and social barriers and pride that would keep us from displaying the greater unity we have in Jesus. If we're all the same, it's not as glorious, our unity is not as glorious as if in the midst of all our differences we have something deeper that brings us together, that transcends all those differences. And the same goes for gender. The same goes for gender. Some view verse 28 as the verse when it comes to gender and God's design of men and women. And especially when it comes to the issue of men and women in, the, in society, in the church, and home. And so I'm, we are preparing, you've seen it in our 
uh, emails from the Elder Council, a series for later this spring on men and women and God's creation design, and we're going to fully dive into uh, God's Word and address many of the current controversies. And so we'll have more to say on these in Important topics soon and we'll have more time to tackle them together in sermons and in seminars and in classes together uh, but for our purposes this morning did God mean for verse 28 to obliterate gender distinctions in the family of God is that what being a son of God means that we're ethnicless classless and now genderless. <laughs> well, I don't think so. Uh, Galatians is one of Paul's earliest letters. And so if this was true, it'd be really hard to understand why Paul rails against homosexual marriage and sin in Romans 1. I mean, if there's no more gender, then it, I mean, it's nonsense. And actually, the end of the Bible, Re Revelation 7, makes no sense either. If, if, if in Christ... He is abolishing or obliterating all differences and distinctions. Because Revelation 7 clearly teaches that God saves a multi-ethnic, multi-language people, and the word people implies all those, uh, no matter uh, age and social distinctions, men and women. Right? So he's, people means everyone, of all ages and genders and classes. So in no way can verse 28 be taken to be biblical evidence erasing or flattening ethnic, social, or gender differences? That's not the point. You, this, is, this is a real hot topic, especially right now in evangelical circles and in people railing against evangelicalism. And verse 28 is their verse. It's like the verse. You, everything has to go through it. And you can, if you don't know these terms, we don't really have time this morning to, de to define them all, but the, the debate becomes uh, if God designed God's design of men and women is it complementarian or is it egalitarian are we equal but different or are we equal and equal is the simplest way to put it and right now complementarians like myself and are under attack by saying verse 28 is actually the verse that obliterates uh, the teaching that we hold uh, that we'll be exploring later this spring uh, that God made men and women equal yet different. And so uh, this verse then has been thrown around, especially the last few weeks, to call people uh, or pastors like myself and churches like ours who, who hold to these truths, uh, abusive, oppressive. And even this week, I saw that we're not even part of God's kingdom. And so these are really hard things, and, and again, I hesitate to even share some of these things, but what I just said, <laughs> if you go look it up on, on, on the internet, or even if you go on to the Wild West of Twitter, you know, and you see what I just said about verse 28, that will be declared hate speech, offensive, abusive, uh, power, power dynamic, all, all these things. And so these are important topics that we must uh, face, and, and we're going to, and I want to give us ample time to explore these things. And I do want to say that egalitarians and complementarians can actually exist together. Right now, it doesn't seem like that's the case, but historically, the church can do, can have, come to like different uh, conclusions about some of these things. 
But what I want to say is verse 28 is not a verse <laughs> that proves it. There are other verses you can, in good faith, come to different conclusions than we have here at Five Points about these things. I'm just trying to say verse 28 is not that verse. It has nothing to do with abolishing or erasing or flattening gender, uh, ethnic, or social differences. The context, the context is that being a son of God has nothing to do with your, your ethnic, social, or gender. It has everything to do with if your faith is in Jesus. And in Jesus, we transcend all those things in this world that are part of this present evil age. And we are made sons of God, all by grace through faith in the Son of God. And so it's actually in our differences, <laughs> differences in which this present evil age can't fathom a true and beautiful unity being a reality. The, what I mean is this. If someone who, who does not believe these things walks into this room and says people of different ethnicities, different classes, different ages, different genders, truly loving one another, <laughs> they, 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 would, they would be shocked. They would wonder how in the world can something like this exist in this world? And Paul's answer is because we're in Christ, which transcends all those differences, which should make us not like each other, which should make us proud, which should be barriers to our true fellowship. But there's something deeper and it's Jesus. And when we live out that true and beautiful unity, we display the glory of God's grace and the diverse richness of his creation to the glory of God in the world around us. And in light of the Judaizers pressing, they were pressing these worldly divisions. Remember in chapter 2, Peter got caught up in them. So much so that when the guys from Jerusalem came, he started pulling back. And there was Jews on one side of the room and Gentiles on the other side of the room. And so it's in light of the Judaizers pressing these kind of differences that Paul answers with the glory and beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That it doesn't, that those things are of no advantage to us. It's Christ that is of supreme importance. So let me try and summarize uh, verse 28 up this way. Uh, Kevin DeYoung helpfully summarizes it in his little book, uh, Men and Women in the Church. He writes this, Men and women are held prisoners under the law, both of us. Both are justified by faith. Both, meaning genders, are set free from the bonds of the law. Both are sons of God. Both are clothed in Christ. Paul's point is not that sexual maleness and femaleness are abolished in Christ, but that sexual difference neither gets one closer to God or makes one farther from him. That's what Paul is saying when there is neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor free. There is no male and female, nor one in Christ. And so the question then becomes, brothers and sisters, do we live from this unity with one another? Is this unity true of us? And not just in this room, but in the rhythms of our week, in our lives together, do we reflect the blood-bought, beautiful unity that we have in Jesus? Does the world see us as this kind of people who should have nothing in common and actually maybe don't have lots in common, having more in common than they do with the people they have in 
common with. Sorry, that was weird, but you know what I'm saying, right? There's a deeper unity in this room that goes beyond what you can see because we've been baptized into Jesus. Is that what we live in? Is that what we live from? And we will, I think, when we know that our new and supernatural identity is also secure. It's new, it's supernatural, and we'll live in that identity more and more when we know this identity is secure. So thirdly, our secure identity. Look at verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now, if all of this couldn't get more amazing, uh, verse 29 takes it up another notch. It's not just that you've been plunged into Jesus, so you're now a son of God, and you are clothed with him, but all that means those with faith in Jesus are his, your Jesus's. It's not just that he is yours. What is a Christian? Well, I, I put my faith in Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. And those aren't wrong. But again, those are emphasizing you, right? I follow Jesus. I believe the gospel. I'm a sinner. I ask for uh, uh, forgiveness of my sins and put my trust in Jesus. Again, those aren't wrong things. But that puts the emphasis on you. What does Paul put the emphasis on? If these things are true of you, before he gets to what you do, he says, you are Christ's. You're his. And we need that. We need it. It's not just that Jesus is mine, but that I am his. Because I am fickle. I wake up on Tuesday and feel weak. (laughs) I am prone to wander. And so, brothers and sisters, not only is Christ ours, but we are his. The one who isn't fickle, who isn't weak, the one who never wanders. And that's why I love singing the song that we sing here, He Will Hold Me Fast. He Will Hold Me Fast. Just talks about this beautiful truth. I could never keep my hold, we sing. I, I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold, but he will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. The one who loved me and gave himself for me. He loves me so, so he will hold me fast. And so again, what is a Christian? It's not just that I've grabbed hold of Jesus but that Jesus grabbed hold of me and the Holy Spirit plunged me into his righteous life, death, and resurrection and has clothed me with Jesus. And so now I'm his. I'm his. And if you're united to Jesus, you are his and that will never change. Your identity is secure. We just uh, saw another alert about a new way People are trying to steal your identity, steal all your stuff. Some of you have gone through that. It's, it's terrible. You know, and there's all these products to try and keep it secure. You have to do this. You have to do that. Don't click links. Do this. Don't do that. All these things to keep it secure. But what is a Christian? You're Christ's. 
so you're secure. Because he reached out for you. He rescued you. He cleansed you with his very own life and death. He clothed you with all that he is and has and will never let you go. He has promised that he is preparing even right now a place for you to spend eternity with and he will return and one day conquer all evil and wipe tears from our eyes and bring us to a place where death is no more. He's promised that. You're his. Which means, sitting at lunch today, not knowing what this week may hold, you can still, you can still say, with all truth and joy to anyone who asks, I'm secure, no matter what happens, come what may, because the end of my story is written. I'm Christ's, so I have an inheritance that cannot be lost. And since it was graciously given to me, since I received it and I didn't achieve it, I can't lose it and it won't be taken away. That's the point of verse 29. The inheritance of justification, life eternal with God now and forever, the Holy Spirit. I mean, all the things that chapters 1 through 3 have shown are ours. They're ours not by performance, but by God's gracious promise. But here's, here's where it gets tricky, though. How is it your promise? How is it my promise? I wasn't there in Genesis 15. And I'm not Jewish. How is it mine? Remember a few days ago in chapter 3, verse 16? We we walked through that deep uh, argument of Paul where he shows that the true offspring of Abraham is Jesus. Well, if Jesus is the true offspring... And you, by faith, are united to the true offspring. That's the if-then in verse 29. Then, that means in God's sight, you are now also the true offspring, an heir of promise. Not because of anything you've done. Not because of your ethnic. Nothing to do with your social class. Nothing to do with your gender. But by your union with Jesus, you are now a true offspring of Abraham, an heir of promise. And because you're an heir, not by anything you've done, there's nothing you can do to lose that identity. No one can steal it from you. It's as secure as Jesus is. Is Jesus secure? If you think, I had a really bad week, I sinned, I wandered, I railed against God, I, I, I have done so much this week, to make my heavenly father frown upon me. Maybe even call into question his love of me. What I'm not saying, hear me, is that there's no consequences for sin or that God doesn't hate sin. I'm not saying any of those things. I'm saying something more fundamental. If you look back on your week and go, how can I even walk into this room? Because you're a son. Not because of what you did or didn't do, but by faith and a promise that in spite of who you are and what you would do, God would come and he would save. And so there's nothing you can do to lose that identity because there's nothing you did to gain it. It's as secure as Jesus. So in those moments when you're thinking, man, I am fickle, I am weak, I wander, Get your eyes off of you and put them on Jesus. 
that that's where our security and salvation are. Your security, or excuse me, your secure identity is as secure as our Savior, Jesus. And so look around you, and as you walk out of here in a few moments, don't see just a room full of people in their Sunday clothes. You're not full, or you're not in a room full of people who just showed up here because we like to do this on a Sunday morning. You're in a room full of people who are sons of God. You're in a room full of people who are clothed with righteousness and salvation. And you are in a room full of people who have an inheritance that is sure and will not be taken away because God promised. Now, you go into Buddy's across the street and you say that to your waiter, you're probably going to get a weird look. But you know what? It's the answer our world needs to hear. It's actually the answer our world is dying to hear. They're searching and longing for this glorious truth. So what a witness we can have when we proclaim this gospel in which we're freely and fully given a new identity, a supernatural identity, and a secure identity. I mean, all around us, people are longing and searching to find an identity like this, to know who they are, to know what this life is for, to find something that won't shift tomorrow, that will not change. And brothers and sisters, isn't that all in Jesus? So when you're asked that question, don't have a panic attack. Start with two words. <laughs> I in Christ. That's what it means. I'm a son. In spite of everything I deserve, I've been clothed with Jesus Christ. And because of Jesus Christ, the end of my story is secure and written, and I have a hope, a living hope, that can never be taken away. Friend, is that yours? Come to Jesus. All who come to him will not be turned away. And brothers and sisters, if you are in Jesus, go out rejoicing in this new and supernatural and secure identity that is already ours in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that more and more we would live from the truth that what is true of Christ is true of us. And that the joy that that would bring would so overflow in us that people would ask about the hope within us and we would proclaim the glories of you who have brought us from life or from death to life, who have brought us out of darkness into your marvelous light, who have taken off our garments of sin and death and have closed, clothed us with garments of righteousness and salvation and have given us a secure inheritance that cannot be taken away no matter what happens. And so may you send us out with that salvation joy on our hearts and on our mouths so that we would, among all the peoples of this world, sing your praises and declare your glories to our neighbors and nations so that they might worship you with us now and forever, we pray. Amen.